You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started with Sunday School. And if you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll beginning to examine verse 10, but I want to read in context, so we'll go back to verse 7. But before we begin, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding. And Lord, as we examine your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would bring understanding to our hearts and minds and that we glorify your son as we learn more about him and as we, by your grace, obey his word. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Paul here is uh, exhorting and also he gives us a real deep understanding of his love for Christ. Uh, let's look at the text and then we'll examine this. Verse 7, chapter 3 of Philippians. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now this text is, just a second, is giving us a greater understanding of just how much Paul loved the Lord, as well as the flock that he was shepherding in Philippi. But as he examined and thought about all the times past prior to his conversion, when he attempted to gain favor in God's eyes by following the law, he was not only ashamed, but he condemned his past actions, knowing that no man will be justified by the law. He taught this clearly in other epistles, especially in Romans, Galatians, and Colossians. All his epistles reflect the knowledge of our salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. So we know that Paul had clearly preached the gospel but now as he looks back, he recognizes what a failure it was for, on his part. 
Because as we look at this, this was Paul's conversion was almost 30 years before he wrote this epistle. And as Paul looked at his life, he recognized how much of a failure and how much of a loss it was for all the years that he had spent trying to follow the law. And even that, he had an incomplete understanding of. But he clarifies it in Galatians. It was given to us as a tutor to show us our sinfulness and lead us to Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, verse 10 is what we're going to focus on through 11. Paul had already mentioned his deep experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ in verse 8, where he said this, More than that, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul had a deep understanding. And as we examined last time, the word know, of course, comes from the Greek word gnosko, which is a deeper knowledge or deeper understanding and experiential knowledge. Gnosis is just knowing about something. Many people know about God, but do not place their faith in him for salvation. Paul here had not only known God about him through Christ, but also had a deep relationship with him. And it grew as he obeyed God, as he served God, as he immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. At that time, New Testament was being penned. He immersed himself in Christ. And as we looked at Philippians 1.21, he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So his whole life was set apart. He was indeed a servant of Jesus Christ, a model for all who follow Christ. <clears throat> On the way to Damascus, at the time Paul was converted, he learned to know Jesus. He had become familiar with the Old Testament and the testimonies he'd heard from the lips of martyrs. But when Jesus Christ appeared to him, it broke him. It truly brought him to his knees. And of course, the whole event orchestrated by God was to bring him to that place because God was going to show him how he was going to be a servant of him. Some of us can <clears throat> relate when we think about our conversion <clears throat> in some way, though not in the dramatic way that Paul experienced it, but we can remember perhaps what happened as we understood that we were completely dead in our sin, that we were alienated from God. Now, we may not have a deep revelation of God's who God is, what he has done, but we had to come to the knowledge that we were sinful and we disobeyed a holy God. And the only way of being saved was through Jesus Christ. 
and placing our faith and trust in him. It may have been in, come in many forms, but it always came through the preaching or teaching or the reading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's when the sanctification process began for all of us. Paul, at this point, was, a, of course, a mature saint ministering to several churches throughout Asia and throughout all of Rome and all the Roman Empire. He was a leader that God had made him that because of his faithfulness, and he was an instrument for God's work at that time. So he had come to know of all the testimonies of the saints. He'd heard the prophets, and yet he rejected and misunderstood what that meant. But when he came to Christ, he realized what he was doing. And he considered himself at that point the least of all the saints. He persecuted Christians, took them in bondage and chains, some of them martyred for the sake of Christ. He attacked the churches. He attacked all those who placed their faith in Christ. Now he had this deep, passionate love to know God and know Christ in a deeper way. I guess we can look at this and say, oh yeah, that's interesting. But it's a conviction. It was to me as I pondered that. How do we get to that level where we recognize how sinful we are and as we examine God's word, it just opens up the understanding of what a great grace that God has poured out on his saints. So Paul had this understanding and he often pinned it in his epistles. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, though I was formerly a blasphemer. Were we not all formerly blasphemers? Indeed. Unless we think of young converts, converts, those of us who were converted prior to... Uh, <clears throat> at an older age, I mean, and some of the younger converts, even though they may not have committed the sins that the more mature saints did, they're still born in sin. So Paul understood this, and he said, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. What's he mean by that? He, he attacked Christians. He would just seemed to see uh, he would prefer that they were all slaughtered, that they were destroyed. There would be no Christians. He said, of though, he spoke of Christians in that period as those in the way. That's what they referred to as some of the believers during that time. <clears throat> it was 30-some years, as I said, that after that, that Paul's conversion and the writing of the, this epistle and now he's expressing joy and how joyful he is. And even though, as we know, he was in prison, <clears throat> he was in Rome. 
He points out the efficacy of our faith. That is, the knowledge of Christ is such a manner that the power of the resurrection is what he felt. He wanted to understand and know that power more. What does he mean by that? has the meaning of completion and redemption so that it comprehends at the same time the idea of death. He wasn't trying to become a martyr for Christ, nor was he saying that there was anything lacking in Christ's sacrificial death that was complete and it was sufficient to save all those that are his children all those who are called. Christ's death and resurrection is the effective power, powerful enough to grant eternal life for all those that are in Christ. Paul longed to experience the power of this resurrection. So that's what we want to look at today. What is that power of the resurrection? Christ's death And the resurrection is effective and powerful enough to grant us eternal life with him. He knew that there was no power in the law. He knew that there was no power in the flesh. He understood that. And he knew that the flesh now could overcome, could not overcome sin apart from God's grace. Christ's resurrection was the greatest display of Christ's power. Raising from the dead, he revealed his absolute power over the physical as well as the spiritual realms. It was the power that saved Paul, he understood. In Romans, he affirmed this in chapter 6, verse 5, or 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been crucified with him through baptism into death, so that as far as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. In our salvation, believers are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what's celebrated at believer's baptism. That doesn't cause us to be regenerated. This is the public acknowledgement of what God has done in believers. That's what believer's baptism is that we celebrate. When a person comes to know Christ and they're living for Christ and they realize that they want to acknowledge that publicly, they are baptized. And that is a public profession showing just what, it's a picture of what Christ has done. Death, burial, and the resurrection. Now we learned last time that this appropriation of righteousness is imputed. In other words, that term imputed means uh, it was charged to our account. So we don't have anything that we could consider righteous in and of ourselves but it is Christ in us that is our righteousness. So God has imputed his righteousness in his children, and that is what Paul is looking at. 
When his righteousness is imputed, we have a yearning and a desire to grow and know Christ in a deeper way. Now that may be gradual, but it should be so of every believer to desire to know more of Christ and to have his knowledge to be the focus of our lives. When God justifies, he also puts his sanctifying spirit into our hearts. So from the divine side, the link between righteousness that is imputed and righteousness imparted by the Holy Spirit from the human side, we're always dependent upon God and have a gratitude of faith. Know that it is God who works in you to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. He already stated that, remember, back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So Paul recognizes. He's already instructed and acknowledged that to these Philippians. And he wants them to continue this understanding and to live out their salvation in a way that honors and glorifies God. <clears throat> that I may know him refers to a knowledge, not only of the mind, but also of the heart. Here, Paul is saying he wants to gain a full understanding of Christ in his person and love as much as possible. He know, he's not satisfied with anything short of perfection. Now, he's not going to anyway say that he's attained that as we go further in this uh, passage, we'll see that. Not that I'm perfected, he says in the next passage, but here he's given acknowledgement of his desire and deepest desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ, especially in the sharing of those experiences with him that's clearly indicated in the rest of the verse of 10 and 11. He wishes to become entirely consumed in Christ. And he wants that to be his entire world. We gain the experiential knowledge uh, through the reading of God's word, through the meditating of God's word, through participation in public worship, the gathering together of the saints, the fellowship and interaction that we have with one another, and then the obedience to his word. That's the evidence to the world that these are Christians, these are set-apart people. Unfortunately, <clears throat> we sometimes are a poor testimony by our behavior, our actions. It could be simply just something that would turn the people away rather than draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that God wants. He wants us to obey him, to honor him and to glorify him with the lives. And then he goes on, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. This is a second part of verse 10. What does he mean by that? Now, some commentators have uh, misunderstood this in thinking somehow that Paul wanted to die a martyr's death and so he was seeking the Lord in that way, and he wanted to emulate Christ in that way 
by suffering and dying a martyr's death. Not on a cross necessarily, but he wanted to be a martyr. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. That's poor exegesis and a very uh, aberrant view of what Paul is bringing us in this text. The apostle speaks specifically here of the fellowship of his sufferings. As we've seen before, he was conformed to his death at salvation. He wrote that and pinned that in Romans 6, 4, and 5. I read that text. But he has something more in mind here. This is a deep partnership, which is the understanding of koinia, fellowship, partnership. He wanted this deep partnership and communion with his Lord. In suffering, when he met Christ, <clears throat> he wanted to have this understanding that whatever suffering we do in this life, we understand God's providential will. He is, we are in his hands. Whatever he allows us to go through, he is sovereignly and providentially carrying out his will. That's a hope for all believers. Many here have gone through and still are going through very deep trials and yet are understanding that they are still under the sovereign hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, which Jim will cover soon, next month or so, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's uniquely qualified to help us in our weaknesses and infirmities. In the text that Jim just expounded shortly ago, therefore he, made to be, he was made to be like us, his brethren, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So as we think of what Christ suffered and did for the propitiation, that is the satisfaction, his penalty and death and his suffering satisfies the wrath of God and pays the penalty for all sin, for all of those who are in Christ. It's not universal. Christ died for all who are in him, for all that come to him. Because of the comforting truth of this verse, Paul expressed also in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. His power is perfected through our weakness. We know that God is working in us to accomplish his will. At the beginning, as we're justified, at the beginning of our sanctification, as we're being set apart for God, he is doing and working in us. And in our weaknesses, in our sickness, our illness, his power is perfected. 
Oftentimes, when people suffer, they're drawn to a deeper prayer life with Christ. Or, if they have a loved one that is suffering, that also drives them to their Lord. So God uses suffering in a way that perfects us, as we saw as uh, James is being taught through by Justin Peters. Know that he works all things together for good, Romans 8, 28. Paul is working in his people, and we have complete trust in his sovereignty. <clears throat> Remember, Paul had just spoken freely and about the imputed righteousness, which is proceeded through the resurrection of Christ and is obtained to us and for us through faith. We don't want to think that he introduced an inactive faith which produce, uh, produces nothing, no effort on the part of the believer, he introduces the thought of fellowship with his sufferings. He's intimating here in an indirect way that these sufferings would apply to all believers. We're all going to face some trial or suffering. The world does, but they don't have any savior to go to, those that are outside of Christ. So though everyone suffers, Christians are benefited through suffering. And God works in our suffering to accomplish his perfect providential will. In all our miseries, trials, sufferings, we're partakers of Christ on the cross. That is, in his <coughs> children, through their afflictions, the way is opened up for us to be blessed through our sufferings. When we consider anything that God allows us to go through, it's nothing in comparison with Christ himself bore. We know that all people suffer, all forms of trials, yet Christians can be, have the understanding that in their suffering, we're under God's providential will. Second Timothy says this, chapter 2, verse 11, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. We must all be prepared for this throughout our lives. They'll present various challenges and trials, and yet it produces life in the Christian, and yet through Christ's death, we now can live this life. What does he mean our lives in Christ are lived in such a way that in a believer's life, we experience suffering in many forms? It could be in our health, loss of a loved one, as I said. Whatever God allows in the way of suffering, we are being transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We enjoy, in the meantime, the promises that the everlasting blessedness that we will have in glory with him. We are redeemed, but we're not fully redeemed. We still live in this flesh. <clears throat> and the same thing, at the same time, it is the resurrected Christ who sent his spirit to all of God's children for the purpose of sanctifying them, setting us apart, empowering us to live a life for him. John 14, 19, Paul's desires, 
<clears throat> excuse me, Christ's life in heaven is the cause of Paul, Paul's new life. <clears throat> Paul desired a growing supply of this cleansing power, this dynamic power that destroys sin and makes room for personal holiness. <clears throat> we are not sinless, and we never will be sinless until we're in glory, until we're in our glorified bodies. But sin, as he points out in Romans 6, is no longer dominant over. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we have the capacity in Christ by the power of God's spirit to overcome sin. <clears throat> so that's the distinction. The resurrected Christ also seals Paul's glorification, not only with the soul, but also with the body. We'll have glorified bodies. When the life of the risen Christ has entered to the heart of any believer, it makes itself more and more manifest in our conduct. A brand new Christian may not have the understanding or the maturity that an older <clears throat> faithful Christian might have. And yet we're all in Christ. As we grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we mature as his children, we are less and less <clears throat> desiring sin. And yet we're impacted by the sinful flesh, the world, and Satan. Paul longs for this ever-increasing supply of this power <clears throat> that proceeds from his Savior. This is an assurance to Paul <clears throat> that this spirit of justification, when the Father raised the Son, therefore proves that he'd accepted the payment for sin. It is the same resurrected Christ who sent his Spirit into Paul for the purpose of setting him apart. <clears throat> And he does so for all believers. <clears throat> when the life of the risen Christ has entered into the heart of the believer, it makes us more and more manifest in our conduct, but also Paul yearns to participate more and more fully with reproaches, afflictions for his Lord and Savior. He wants to fill up whatever is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for his body, the church. Now, what does that mean? In <clears throat> Colossians 1.24, he stated that. And yet, that is not saying that there is any lack or lack of efficacy in the Savior's sacrificial death. Paul wants to continue serving him in a way that his suffering will honor and fill up that which is lacking. Christ died for all who come to him, and yet Paul now is living out as other believers have lived out and still continue to live out this life and also bring forth the testimony of God's saving power. <clears throat> In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. <clears throat> Suffering is privilege, and we've already looked at that in Philippians 1, 29. It implies Paul's 
brought forth some of the sufferings he went through. He was beaten. He was stoned. He had hungered. He was shipwrecked. He was cold. He suffered without lack of clothes, which he endured in the work of witnessing Christ for Christ. <clears throat> As we grow, our sin is our nail to Christ's cross. They're paid for, and yet Christ wants us to be continually conformed to his image. The desire to participate in the suffering of Christ is part of the intense longing and striving for complete holiness. This is what Paul desired. <clears throat> Becoming increasingly conformed to his death. This phrase <clears throat> at the end of verse 10 should be true in our lives. Paul didn't in any way gain favor with God through any of his sufferings or persecution or trials. He wanted to honor God by a consecrated life as he yielded to God's spirit through these trials. In order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead, this is verse 11, a final benefit Paul obtained when he met Christ was the guarantee of his future resurrection when he would share Christ's glory. The Greek phrase in the NASB, the New American Standard, translates, in order that, which actually reads, if someone <clears throat> is not doubting Paul's part, but rather his humility, <clears throat> instead of in order that, it should read, if somehow. This doesn't reflect any doubt on Paul's part. He's just emphasizing, for I am the least, his humility. He wasn't doubting the efficacy of Christ's suffering, but he wanted to express in a humble way his servitude. Paul had this sense of unworthiness, which never left him. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he wrote, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians 3.8, he described himself as the very least of all the saints. So we think of this <clears throat> eminent saint, <clears throat> Paul, who loved the Lord, who wrote over 70% of the New Testament epistles and became one of the greatest apostles. Paul considered him the least of all. He didn't even consider himself worthy to be called an apostle. He understood God's forgiveness, but he, because he had persecuted the church, he considered himself not worthy. The phrase, the resurrection from the dead, is unique in Scripture. It literally reads, the out-resurrection from among the corpses. That's the literal meaning. Believers will attain to the resurrection at the rapture when we will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and will be changed. For this perishable, going to Corinthians 15, 
must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Believers will be taken out from among the rest of the dead, and they will not be raised with believers until the millennial kingdom. We'll be transformed and we'll have our glorified bodies. Now we go to be with Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul also taught that we, our soul goes immediately to be with the Lord, but we do not get our glorified bodies until Christ returns. Paul hated the weakness of his flesh and longed to be rid of it because he saw himself as wretched. In Romans 7, 24, he wrote, We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves... Oh, sorry. I'm giving you the wrong text. This is Romans 8. We ourselves have the first fruit of the Spirit. Even ourselves within ourselves are groaning, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. So even the very creation, as Jim pointed out in his message a couple of weeks ago, even the creation groans for the redemption of the saints. <clears throat> when we are one with Christ, the knowledge of Christ is our identification with him. Christ is imputed as righteousness to us, the power of Christ is our sanctification. We participate in sufferings with Christ and share Christ's glory in our glorification. No wonder Paul had to exchange these religious credentials that he held to for so long. Now he put that in a loss column. <clears throat> There's an account in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26, that records another man that comes to the same crossroads as Paul, and yet he replied to the question about how to obtain life. Jesus said to him, obey the law. And the young man said to Jesus, all these things I have kept, even from my youth. What am I still lacking? And then Christ, of course, said, Okay, because the man was wealthy. He said, sell everything you have, give to the poor and follow me. The man turned and walked away. That was an illustration of how <clears throat> some cling to the world, cling to the materialism of this world and the trappings of this world, and yet try to claim some form of righteousness because they feel somehow that they have attained that by their outward behavior. <clears throat> I want to read a quote from uh, John Calvin. He said this in his commentary of Philippians. There's a twofold participation and fellowship in the death of Christ. The one is inward. That is, in Scripture, the term mortification of the flesh or the crucifixion of the old man, of which... Paul treats in the sixth chapter of Romans. The other is outward. That's a term of the mortification of the outward man. It is the endurance of the cross, which he treats in the eighth chapter of Romans. After introducing the power of his resurrection, Christ crucified is set before us 
and we may follow him through tribulation and distress. The resurrection of the dead is expressly made mention of that we may know that we must die before we can live eternally with Christ. This is the continued subject of meditation to believers so long as they sojourn in this world, end quote. Now, it's kind of wordy, but he was saying how the inward work that Christ does when he indwells us at our justification and the outward work that he does in us as we're sanctified. I want to read to you a, a verse in Colossians chapter 3, which this mortification of our flesh is what Paul was emphasizing. In verse 5 of chapter 3 of Colossians, it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So Paul there understood the work of taking captive our thoughts, the work of rendering ourselves dead to those passions. We would not have the capacity apart from God's spirit to do so. By his grace, we can. It's a matter of God working in us. <clears throat> when the apostle desires to become increasingly conformed to his death, <clears throat> some have interpreted longing to die by persecution. But according to this passage, this is not so. With a believing heart, the Christian appropriates saving value in Christ's death. He dies to sin, for the guilt of his sin is removed, and his, the power over him is gradually being reduced. The work of the Holy Spirit working in us brings that to pass. Rejecting sin and selflessness, we throw ourselves in the work of Christ. That is, we're motivated to serve God in everything that we do. It doesn't matter how we serve him. It matters what we do in our service for him. As we become testimonies for God, as we serve him selflessly, we want no credit for it. We want to honor God with our service. Similarly, it's stated that the believer was crucified with Christ and was buried with him and raised with him. These expressions cannot be taken literally to mean that Christ's followers suffered death by crucifixion, that their bodies were buried and they will be physically raised. The context is parallel passages has the meaning that also holds the understanding of Paul, if I only may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. What's he mean? In light of both <clears throat> passages in this context, Paul's intense longing and his striving was to be raised completely above sin and selflessness. Now, he knew that he wasn't going to attain because he says that in the next verse, but he wanted to glorify God. In Romans 6, and I'll close with this, Verse 4, 5, and 11, this is <clears throat> spiritual perfection for the entire person will not be fully attained until Christ's return. He expresses that. When in both soul and body, 
Paul will glorify God in Christ forever and will delight in the blessings of fellowship with him, with all the saints in heaven and the new earth. This will be the gracious reward and the prize given to all of us as he works in us his glorious work. Paul says, if only I may attain, he is not expressing <clears throat> uh, distrust in the power of God or doubt in his salvation. Paul often expresses rejoicing in his salvation. <clears throat> this is an assurance that he was strengthened as the years went by. In 1 Timothy, when he wrote, to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, he said this. <clears throat> the spirit, uh, <clears throat> he wrote in it, the spirit of humility and commendable distrust of self. The words here are simply an earnest striving. They show that Paul, his ideal, as an idealist, he applied himself to the rule of law if, from God's word and yet he imposes in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 that the Spirit works in us to accomplish God's will and to obey his word. We no longer have a sacrificial law. We no longer have to follow the Old Testament law, and yet we are working in a way that God works in us the moral law that he has penned. So in our obedience, that brings glory to God, and that's what Paul was striving for. Next week, we'll look, or next time, <clears throat> I should say, we'll look in chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, and <clears throat> we'll have Paul's understanding of his genuineness here. And he said, <clears throat> I'll read it, and we'll look at it next time. Not that I have already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So he goes on to say that he is not anyway fully mature, but he's going to press toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. So as we consider this text, let's uh, just gain from Paul's exhortation, that deep desire to know God in a deeper way, to serve him joyfully, and to be able to realize his sovereign hand upon us is working in us and through us to do his will. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you once again that you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you give us the ability to honor you and obey you and power no longer has enslaved us and we now have the ability by your strength and your grace by the work of your spirit to overcome sin we give you thanks for that we thank you for the endorsement of paul to give us a desire to grow in our knowledge of you and i pray that we might pursue that to your glory in jesus name amen Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.